This message by Sam Shin, entitled Vision Building, was recorded at Wellspring Church on February 10th, 2019. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9, through chapter 3, verse 32. His promises. And so everything that he did was to stop and just simply talk, to ask, to wonder, to dream with the Lord in mind. And because of that, God had divinely put upon his heart this incredibly difficult mission. It was going to take so much work, and it was going to take actually far more than just Nehemiah to get on board with this plan. And what we see in this process is two things happening. That when he is going through this evaluation, it's not in contradiction to God's sovereignty or God's providence. And oftentimes we tend to think very much like a pendulum. There's God's sovereignty on one hand and our responsibility, our work on the other. And it's almost as if you can only do one and not the other. You can only believe in God's sovereignty and yet not really have to take into your own hands work, decision-making, laboring, planning, strategies, and at the same time, only focus on that and neglect that God is ultimately sovereign and Lord and King. That's uh, sort of in a nutshell, verses 9 through 16, Nehemiah's evaluation plan, you might say, of this project. The next part is perhaps the more difficult part, far more actually, and it's one that for most leaders, it's a challenge. The challenge of getting a group of people who are scattered and who are particularly maybe not so directional in their thinking to come together, to be united and to be united for a very specific purpose, a very difficult purpose, a difficult mission that you might, you probably experienced in all sorts of contexts. If you play sports, you've experienced it on sports teams. If you are working, sometimes you have a really great manager who has a great vision or a great CEO of a company. Sometimes you see it in families, a father leading, shepherding, guiding, having a real direct plan and a vision for their family, the church. So it really does take, here's our vision, and here's where we're going, and here's why we're going there, and here's what it's going to take. And it takes a constant uh, remembrance of that vision. And so with Nehemiah, he does exactly this. After evaluating the situation, he says in verses 17 through 20, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruin with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you belling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah lays out in this text a little bit of a, a roadmap, a vision of what he wants the people to understand of the task and not just the task, but the purpose of the task at hand. And the first way he does it is to explain and really show the need that is there in verse 17. 
You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Vision is always dependent on a need. Because if there is no need, there's no desire or picture of why we should ever do something. Jerusalem is in terrible despair and the people's lives were actually in danger, physically in danger. And when they heard Nehemiah, they could have scoffed at him and yelled at him and said, we're just, leave us alone. We're, you know, we're just going to live in this slop. He could have been frustrated with them. And you will see quite often, there are many instances where I think the ordinary person, the, the normal person who specifically does not have that relationship with God in mind would have just said, forget it. I'm giving up with all of you because you are too hard to deal with. But he was a leader in every way. And the first thing that he did was to recognize that it wasn't just those people out there who have a need. It was a communal need, a community need. Look at the verse again, and you see it so clearly in the pronouns that he uses in verse 17. You see the trouble we are in. Come let us build that we may no longer suffer derision. Again, think about where Nehemiah has come from and who he is. He came from Persia. He was a cupbearer to the king. He had a very comfortable life. There was no need for him to actually do this. It would just be far easier to maintain his lofty position, privileged position, and to just live comfortably. And not on top of that, this was not his homeland. He wasn't born here. He didn't, he never had laid eyes upon Jerusalem. All he did was hear stories. So it wasn't as though he had this nostalgic feeling for Jerusalem, how it used to be. It was, he was a foreigner to the land. Thirdly, he's only been there for three days. And he's also come as um, a ruler, a representative, a governor of the king. And very easily he could have said, this is not my problem. You're there, you're here, I'm your ruler, you're going to serve me. But he doesn't do that. The, the pronouns show us that he is not just invested, he sees himself as part of the solution. He is feeling empathetically and very much in every way that this is his people. He is going to do just as much as he's asking them to do. We are in trouble. We have to build. We may no longer suffer derision. And you get that sense from chapter 1 where he was weeping for months, even though he had never experienced the people, never been to the land. There is something to that type of leadership that understands that it's not simply conveying orders or just giving a bunch of roles and a bunch of administrative plans and saying, okay, do your duty. And you know, I know some of you are in the marketplace, in the workplace, and you are in leadership positions. There's a lot to learn about leadership from Nehemiah. And this is significantly one of the greatest steps of a solid, powerful leader is someone who is in the trenches with his men and with the, with the women. Someone who is fighting alongside Someone who is battling together and recognizing that there is no task that you are asking those whom you care and serve under that you yourself are unwilling to take. And Nehemiah really shows that. It's a, it's a humble position, but that position doesn't happen unless he sees first 
his relationship to God that he's serving God first. God is the one he cares for. His opinion matters most. And when you have that mindset, that relationship, that vertical relationship, it empowers your horizontal relationship. Secondly is that this vision requires an understanding of the thread, the the parallel threads of God's will and our work. Will and work. Those two always go together in leadership and in any task at hand. Um, In verse 18, Nehemiah says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. It's a really important verse because it shows that God's hand is there. He believes it. He sees it. He knows it to be true. But that doesn't keep him from actually doing the work and that and trusting that the actions and circumstances that are surrounding his life are in conjunction and work together and complement what God is already doing. So the king speaks, but Nehemiah sees it as, yes, the king is speaking, but also God is using. And both of those come together. This plays out in so many different ways in our lives and in ministry. One of the privileges that I have of being in your life is to care for you and to serve you when you are ill or when a loved one is ill. I absolutely think that that is the treasure of the church. The fact that when you are at your most dire state, your weakest place, that you're not alone, that you have many people praying for you, many people caring for your needs physically, many people thinking about your children, many people thinking about how do we bless you. But one privilege I have is that when I go to pray for someone, specifically say at the hospital or something like that, there are two things that I pray. I always pray first, Lord, please heal this person. The second thing I pray is, Lord, if you should not heal this person, give them the grace of your comfort and strength and power to trust in you no matter what. And I believe that both of those prayers are concurrent, are true, and God hears both of them. And I do pray always for healing. That's my number one prayer. But I also know that Scripture reminds us, as the Apostle Paul tells us even in his own life, that sometimes God chooses not to heal the thorn in the flesh. Sometimes there's something to be learned about him and you that you could not learn apart from that trial, that suffering. And so both of those are sustained concurrently. It's God's will and yet our responsibility. And that's in all things. And we can do both concurrently, just like Nehemiah. Pray for God's favor in our lives. And we should. And you should ask for many things. Ask for whatever you wish in my name and it will be given to you. But the key is in my name, Jesus says. So it's always trusting that no matter what, you're going to submit to God's will, even though sometimes he will answer I want to give that to you. And he'll give it to you miraculously. This is important for us when we are thinking about making decisions, life decisions, simple decisions. Um, I lost something recently, actually. And it was about $300. I lost it this week. And I've been, you know, when I, I remember when uh, Eric was talking about losing the, the parable of the, 
the lost coin. And he was saying, oh, when you, that was me this week. I was looking everywhere. And I think I lost it in the airport. And, uh, I sent an email to Southwest and to, um, as well as to the airport and asked them. And I don't expect to hear anything really. And so, you know, as I was looking for this, I was thinking, can I find it? Please, Lord, help me find it. But there's the other side of, Lord, I trust your will. And it's hard, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you always want the, help me to find it, Lord, please. <laughs> help me to find it. Or give me this job. Or let this woman say yes when I propose, you know, or whatever it might be, right? So there's always this desire, and the greater desire is always obviously to get what we want. And it is hard to say, not my will, but your will be done. But we must always do that. And that should be about ch planning church buildings, <laughs> praying for healness, for a healing. Um, we're not fatalistic, but we must not make plans and decisions and make medical choices as if God's merely a tag-along to all that. The real question is, do I trust God or not with my life? James puts it this way in James chapter 4, verses 14, 15. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Those of us, you know, if you, you talk to people who are older than you, they understand the concept of the vanishing mist life, really. You know, I was talking to my mother-in-law and I was saying, I was just thinking about it and I was thinking, you know, you, when you were my age, that's when I got married. That was startling to me. <laughs> I was thinking, wait a second, that I seem old now. You know, it's like when you were my age, I was marrying your daughter. It was really striking that I'm that age now. And that just truly went so fast. Life is a vanishing mist. And the older you get, the more you understand how precious the sovereign will of God is. Because slowly but surely, you will come to far more important decisions, end-of-life decisions. Decisions that you're really weighing, what am I doing with the rest of my life? It's what the midlife crisis is all about. And left apart from God, it's always, I need to buy a really nice sports car. I need to redo my wardrobe. I need to, what's her name? Marie Kondo my life. <laughs> I need to do that. It's the get that all going because I need a new change, a new me you're getting a little bit of a sense of the vanishing mist mentality. But the answer is not going to be to organize your wardrobe better or to get rid of things that are messy in your life. The answer is, do you trust God's will and his sovereignty? Is there a growing trust in it? Nehemiah understood that, and it's what helped him to actually be able to conquer this unconquerable task. Thirdly is, this part of this vision is, he needed a united response. Verse 18. And they said, they being all the people, let us rise up and build. 
Let us rise up and build. Now, if we go back to verse 17 um, and verse 18, after he says, tells all the troubles, and then verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. I would imagine verse 18, that first part, would have taken a long discussion, a lot of explanation, because he's, he's a stranger to them. They don't know really who he is. So he has to explain who he is, what his life has been like, what God has shown him, how he, those, those four to six months of praying and waiting because he was so frightened as to whether his life was on the line, whether the king was going to slop off his head. And so trusting that God is with him. And then he had a mission and here's how God answered. And he's explaining all of this and he's telling them and he's getting them understanding that God is here. He He's in this midst and he has a plan for this his people and he hasn't abandoned them. He hasn't left them alone. And so then after hearing all that, verse 18, let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. It's not just a physical strengthening. It's a, it's a heart strengthening because they were people of fear. They were people who were actually not so skilled at this task. They were unorganized. They were scattered. They were poor. They, they didn't have much. And so there's within that, when you're in that state, and I think all of us know this, when you have a, even a heart of oppression, a darkness, a depression, depression, where you feel despairing, discouraged. You don't even want to get out of bed. And so these people needed to be raised up. How do you get from that place to suddenly saying, let us rise up and build this wall? I mean, that just doesn't seem possible. Unless they understood what Nehemiah was bringing to them was the hope of God. That God did care for them. That God sovereignly plucked him out of Persia brought them four months journey to this place to give them the good news that God is their saving God. He is still good to them. He still loves them. He has not abandoned them. They weren't united in response unanimously, but generally united. I mean, there was opposition. We'll see that. And they understood it's going to be hard work. You know, the walls of Jerusalem, when it was built, at this stage, at least, it was probably about 20 to 30 feet high, four feet thick. So if you have a child about four feet tall, think about the wall that thick, you know, about arm's length and 20 feet high, you know, probably up to, I don't know, ceiling, maybe a little bit lower, all around the city. If you go to Jerusalem, it's not that wall because that was a later wall, but still, it's a pretty significant wall. It would... Remember, no power tools, no tools, barely any, and almost no skilled labor. We'll talk about that in chapter three with the, with the, um, members. So this is going to take quite a lot of work. And you know, amazingly, it was built in 52 days. 52. That might sound like a long time, but think about it this way. When we're thinking about constructing our building, which is not from scratch, it's the inside, we're thinking it's going to take maybe two to three months construction. 
two to three months. They built this whole wall in 52 days. A people who were unskilled, who were scared, who had, who were poor, who had nothing. How in the world did they do this without any power tools, any skilled laborers, with a heart that was discouraged and, and impoverished? It had to be one thing, having a vision for God and being united in response. A complete ownership of the project to say, no matter what, we can do this. We will do this. They're the ones who say, let us rise up and build this wall. There is a cost. This cost is so great. The great cost of these people building this wall is that, again, what were they doing? They were subsistence farming. They were exiles in an impoverished land. They had no business, no no economy. It was basically subsistence farming. They weren't you know, playing darts and picking daisies and playing ping pong all day. They, When they were working on this wall, what could they not do? Plant and farm. They had to take turns. Someone would be planting so that someone else could be building the wall and they would take shifts and then someone else would be planting. So it would impact their their very daily life and living. They couldn't eat well. They would probably have to be you know, commissioning and caring for children while someone else, fathers or and mothers and kids are working on this wall. It's the only way that it could have been done so fast with such a vast project. They had to do it solely based on the fact that they believed this to be worth it. And when you see that something is worthwhile, it's amazing what people can do. Lastly is they had to overcome opposition. Verses 19 through 20. But when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. You have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Whenever you are trying to do something for Christ and his kingdom, you will face opposition. Even if there's unity, there will be some opposition. There always will be. It has to happen because in this world, there will be trouble. Sambala, Tobiah, and Geshem, they're not three random men. They're from, if you look at, there's a description of the Horonite, the Ammonite, the Arab. These are people groups that had been historically opposed to Israel since the founding of Israel. They had always want, wanted Israel destroyed. There was a historic animosity. And so this is something that has been ongoing for a long time. And when we see this, whenever you are trying to do anything of the Lord, there's always going to be opposition, not just physical opposition, but spiritual opposition. And the spiritual opposition is often driving the physical opposition. Satan is a deceiver. It's his greatest tool. It's his weapon of choice. Out of all the weapons that he could use, including death, the number one weapon he loves to use most is lying, deception. And one of the greatest temptations when starting something spiritual, no matter what it is, church planting, building a church building, starting a new mission, is to think that all we need to do is roll up our sleeves and get the most talented people and the most money possible and the job will be done and everything will be great. 
If someone were to come today and drop off $5 million to our church and say, here, here's, here's the money for the building. I wonder if actually that would be a good thing or not so good. There is something to the fact that as a church, we raised over $1.5 million in a very short period of time from pretty much everybody versus someone's one wealthy person saying, here's $5 million, go and build a church building. That sounds nice. It does, right? But what happens is that you have this idea that, oh, this is left to the experts, the rich people, the people who are most skilled, most invested. It's for the leadership. And that's not how Nehemiah and the Lord builds his kingdom and Christ builds his kingdom. It's not, look at Jesus' disciples. He didn't get the CEOs of the world and the religious leaders of the world. And he got fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary people. Because what he wanted everyone to know is this is God at work. Not one person who is the savior, who is so wealthy or so educated or so skilled, but it is God who actually does the work of saving. And so we must never equate success with what it, something looks like physically. I was watching a, a documentary on Heritage Park USA. Anyone know what that is? Heritage Park USA was built by Jim and Tammy Faye Baker in the 1980s. He was a televangelist. And for those of you who are maybe my age, <laughs> you would know him a little bit. He founded PTL Ministries and raised millions of dollars. Well, anyway, it was a... They showed sort of what it was like. He wanted to create the Christian Disneyland. And he sort of did, sort of. It's never as good as Disneyland. But he created this sort of uh, amusement park. It was really big and had all sorts of buildings. And then they shifted it to what it looks like today, and it's a, mostly a ghost town. It's, it's sad. You know, they invested millions of dollars into this complex and it's meaningless today. It's a shell. And I have a feeling that that's the case for so many, even church buildings around this country, around North America, around the world. Go to Europe and you see that. Pastor Greta Vosper, she's the pastor of West Hill United Church in Ontario, Canada. And her claim to fame as a United Church pastor is, which is one of the oldest Protestant denominations in Canada, is that she is an avowed atheist as a pastor. As a Christian pastor, she's an atheist. She's written books on being an atheist. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, that just seems like a contradiction of terms. Christian pastor who's an atheist. Well, that's who she is. And I went to her website and I looked at the church building and I thought, I wish we could have that building. <laughs> it's a really nice building. But that's the sad part of it all is that there are church buildings around this country, around most of the West, where they're now either bars or clubs, or they're populated by churches and church members and even pastors who don't even believe that there is a God. And that's sort of the sad reality of what happens when we focus solely on a building, on decor. Now, I'm running sort of, again, this parallel line. On the one hand, to say, Buildings don't matter. Decor doesn't matter. And to say, 
who were trying to build this building. Why are, we do, why are you trying to do both at the same time? Because I do believe that God wants us to always hold things loosely. To trust him no matter what. That if we should even lose everything. Not that we are going to. I don't want you to scare you into thinking that. But we could. Who knows? That God is still good. He is still faithful. Opposition and persecution is a part of the gospel. It coincides with it together. Jesus died. He was crucified for our sins. That's not just something that we say as a, as a young Sunday schooler. And we just think, well, that's a nice thing. That's a little phrase, a pithy phrase that we all know Christians are about. But in actuality, to be a, a Christian is to be someone who will face opposition, persecution. I want to close with a couple of stories. Um, Ravi Zacharias tells a story of his classmate at Nyack College, Kos Fiji. And he was a missionary with OMF, Overseas Missionary Fellowship. He was an unusually godly man. He was very dedicated. One time, Ravi Zacharias, the, uh, the evangelist, if you don't know who he is, he's an evangelist. He was uh, preaching in Thailand. And during that time, they decided to meet up because Kos was ministering in Thailand. And they met in his hotel room, and Kos asked Ravi, would you pr- please pray for me? Because he was being threatened by some young Thai people, uh, Thai young people, and if he continued to preach the gospel, his life was in danger. And that was in 1974. And then after that meeting, every time that Ravi would receive a prayer letter from Kos, he would receive a little note at the bottom, Please pray for me. My life is in jeopardy. A letter came. Another letter came and he said, Please pray for me. God is doing great things, but Satan is really trying to resist. And then in that same package of mail came another letter letter from OMF saying, In memoriam, Coast Fiji. What happened to him was that he had finished preaching at a prayer meeting. He had walked out. And a young man came and shot him in the face multiple times. This man had three young children. And he had a brother who also was in the ministry. And what his brother decided to do was to leave the ministry and go to Thailand and preach the gospel to those same people who had killed his brother. As long as we are on this side of heaven, we will face opposition. Jesus says, John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This last story, um, you know, I know I've been quoting it a lot, but I'm sorry, but I'm going to quote him again. Nick Ripkin in um, The Insanity of God. He says, one of the most accurate ways to detect and measure the activity of God is to note the amount of opposition that is present. And this is a man who basically has gone to all parts of the world where people are being persecuted for the sake of Christ. He had a friend named Samira who was from a Muslim nation. And she came, she came to Christ, was baptized. Once she was baptized, her family came after her. They wanted to kill her, her own family. And so she applied to the UN for refugee status connected with the United States, was able to get refugee status here and entered into the country. Samira came and was able to spend some time with Nick Ripkin and his wife for a week. 
And while they were there, they were there on Sunday. And on that Sunday, there happened to be a baptism, just like we're going to have. And I want to read to you what she saw when Samira was sitting there watching the baptism of a whole family. This is what she said. I cannot believe this. I cannot believe that I have lived long enough to see people being baptized in public, an entire family together. No one is shooting at them. No one is threatening them. No one will go to prison. No one will be tortured and no one will be killed. And they are being openly and freely baptized as a family. I never dreamed that God could do such things. I never believed that I would live to see a miracle like this. Why aren't all these people standing and cheering and clapping at such a miracle from God? I think I'm going to burst with joy. I think I'm going to shout. And so Nick Ripkin was saying, why don't you just shout? It's okay. You know, we're going to see a baptism today. And I want you to know that in this world, what we're going to do today would cost someone's life. Could. For those of you who are being baptized It is a joyous celebration. It is a testament of faith. But we who are in Christ, if we are living our lives shining forth the light of the gospel, being able to proclaim Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to this world to save, as the Apostle Paul says, the chief of sinners, a wretch like me, as John Newton sings about in Amazing Grace. If we can say that and we say And by going into this water, I am going to testify to the living God, no matter the opposition. If we all believe that, we can do tremendous things. Forget about building a building. We can build the body of Christ by proclaiming Christ to all the world. So when we see and witness this baptism, I hope you experience the miracle of what baptism is about. The joy the excitement, and with a shout, be able to proclaim, hallelujah, what a savior, as we sang about earlier. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You remind us time and time again through your word that you love us in ways that we cannot imagine. One day when we see you face to face, oh, how we will see the beauty of the living God, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Only then will we really fall on our knees, on our face, and just see how much we have been saved from. On this day that we baptize three people, what a picture of the beauty of rebirth, to be born again. I'm thankful for witnesses like Samira, who had to flee her own country, her own family because by being baptized, she was going to, um, she had a target on her back. And she resounds with the miracle of rebirth. So Lord, I pray that you would as well help us to see this miracle today. And in it, what a small task it would be to build a church building. Far greater we want to see the world to come to know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. We praise you. You are to be worthy. You are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.